Good morning. I'd like you to open your Bibles to Jonah chapter 3, which is on page 775 in your pew Bibles. And if you don't have a Bible of your own, please just take one of ours and use it at home. We would love for you to do that. So we're in Jonah chapter 3. Let me catch you up if, if you've missed any of the story of Jonah before we immerse ourselves in chapter 3. Immerse ourselves in chapter 3. Water reference. Thank you. Okay. Jonah 3. So what we've seen so far is you have this, this prophet of God, religious, moral, Bible-leading, church-going person. God tells him, go to Nineveh, this pagan city, and preach my message there. And he refuses to go, runs in the opposite direction. God sends a storm, then God sends a fish, and God has some time with him as he is in the, in the stomach of the fish. And that's when God convinces him that he is glorious and that he is gracious. And so there's a transformation that happens with Jonah in chapter 2. Uh, is it a conversion? Maybe. Uh, it certainly is repentance. He's changed, and he is now, we will see in chapter 3, is willing to follow God wherever he leads him. So let me read chapter 3 to you. You can follow along in your, in your Bibles, and then I'll tell you what we're going to do with it. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from the evil, their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is God's word. This is what I'd like to do. I have uh, three points, unlike Jonah's sermon in our text. We'll get to that, but I have three points in my sermon this morning. Number one, what God did for Jonah. Number two, what God did through Jonah. And then we'll finish by talking about what God might do through us. So what God did through Jonah, for Jonah, what God did through Jonah, and then what God can do through us. All right, look with me, please, at verses 1 and 2. I think this should be surprising to us, though many of us know this story and, and know God, and so it may not be as surprising to us, but I think it really should be. This is what it says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, 
saying, which is the same thing God had told him before, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So the second time, God is telling Jonah to go to Nineveh. I think it is surprising that God would overlook his disobedience, that God would restore him again to the office of his prophet and send him again to Nineveh. Jonah has already failed that commission, and God renews it. God restores him. He affirms that call to him. This, this disobedient prophet who fled from, from God's presence, who put a bunch of people in danger through his disobedience, and yet God calls on him the second time. The word of the Lord comes the second time to him again and, say, and says, go to Nineveh and preach my message there to him, to them. Matthew Henry says, by this it appears that God was perfectly reconciled to Jonah, that he employed him again in his service, and the commission anew given him was an evidence of the remission of his former disobedience. This is what's happening here. God chooses to accept Jonah's present obedience and overlook his past disobedience. This is God's choice. God is deciding, I will use him again, or I will try to use him again, even though he has failed me. I'm calling on him again and sending him again to Nineveh. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Now, I was thinking about it this week, and I realized that Jonah is not unique in his experience of, of restoration, in his experience of God overlooking his disobedience and still restoring him to a position of influence and, and, and a call to serve God and to follow him. In fact, I think a lot of people in the Bible have the very same experience of God overlooking their weakness, of God disregarding their failure. Now, I'm going to give you an illustration, and then I'm going to show you from Scripture and hopefully prove to you from Scripture that that is, in fact, how God deals with us. My illustration comes from uh, my wife's experience in Ukraine. Jillian and her friend Andrea, they were, um, they were roommates in Ukraine when they were missionaries there for a year. And, you know, they're American college students and go to a totally different country, right, which everything is different and even more different then than it is now. There's a lot more Western influence now, but back in the late 90s. And so it's hard. Because everything you have is new and different and strange. And so every time you go to someone's house, right, and they make what they think is just this great meal, right? And if you're not used to a lot of those kinds of foods, right, it's a very different experience for you. You're just trying to get through the meal a lot of the times. And so then when somebody asks you, as it often happened, well, did you like it? Was it wasn't it great? And what I often would hear Jillian and Andrea say, they would say, well, the bread was great. <laughs> they would always point to the bread. And the, we, Ukrainians, we do have good bread, that's true. But it was always, the focus was always on what was good, even if other stuff was not that agreeable to them. It was strange and new. But I thought that was good that they always point to something they enjoyed and that it was good for them, that they appreciate it. I think it sets a tone in interacting with, with other people when you point to something that is good and, and not to something that is bad or something you don't understand. 
Now, I knew another missionary, I remember, I didn't know him well, and I was, I was a very new believer at that point. And I remember I was talking to him, and I asked him, well, how do you like being here in Ukraine? And here, you know, young Ukrainian, proud of his country, right? He says, how do you like being here in Ukraine? And he said, well, what do you mean to tell you? He's like, you know, the streets are dirty. You know, there's drunken people in my, outside of my building. You know, the, your economy is terrible. And he just started listing all the things that are bad about my country. And are they true things? Yeah, they're true. They're true. But there are other things that are good, right? It's not all that there was true of Ukraine. And yet, different perspectives, right? You can have someone like Jillian and Andrea who would say, well, maybe I didn't appreciate those other strange foods, but I really like the bread. And then someone else would say, well, you know, maybe there are some good things, but there are overwhelmingly bad things here too. Different perspectives, right? And that relationship is very different. For me as a Ukrainian, when I hear somebody just criticizing my country, right, I'm not really that interested in continuing that conversation. But if somebody highlights good things about my country, then yeah, much more prone to develop that relationship. Well, what I see in Scripture, and this was a bit of a revelation for me this week, and, and maybe it's old news to you, so forgive me if I, if I just tell you what you already know, but I thought it was so interesting that often in Scripture, the way people's lives are assessed by Scripture, by God, overwhelmingly good things are highlighted and bad things are not even mentioned. Now, you know if you're a reader of Scripture, as most of you are, you know that almost every major character in Scripture has tremendous failures and flaws, right? That's not new to anybody, is it? Abraham, some interesting things in his past, right? Pretends his wife is his sister so he can have a better life. Not good. Moses, prevented from going into the promised land because of his own personal disobedience, taking God for granted, using God's power. Um, you know, you have, um, you have David, big deal, right? Adultery that leads to murder. I mean, so, so you look at you know, Job, kind of whiny, right? Defensive, if you read Job. So you look at those characters and, and you say, okay, I'm really glad the Bible is honest about this, right? That's my first thought. Is I'm really glad the Bible is not exaggerating and, and pretending like everything was great and we should just imitate these people that, yeah, it rings true because we're all kind of like that. But what's interesting is that when those lives are assessed later in Scripture, all of a sudden a lot of those negative things that Bible is so open and honest about in the moment, they kind of fade and they disappear. Now let me give you an example. Second Peter 2, verses 7 through 8. And please turn to that so that I'm not telling you something just from my own my own mind, but these are biblical things. In 2 Peter 2, verses 7 through 8. So Peter is talking about Lot, another, you know, prize of the Old Testament. A lot of, lot of interesting things happen with Lot here. But look how Peter is talking about, about Lot. Three times he calls him righteous in this, just two verses. He's really trying to get that point across, that righteous Lot with his righteous soul. And he's talking about how, how Lot, who lived in a very immoral, pagan place, how his, his soul was tormented, that his sensibilities, his righteous sensibilities were continuously assaulted by the immorality of the, of the people around him. 
and how it was so hard for him to live there, and how he struggled with that. Being a righteous person, he struggled with all the sinfulness around him. Now, is Peter right to say that? Yeah, I think he's accurate. Any believer, whatever, you know, your, your spiritual maturity is, it doesn't matter. Sin is going to bother you if you're a real believer. It's going to bother you. The degree may vary, but it's still going to bother you. So, of course, sin bothered Lot. But to call him righteous three times? We know other things about Lot from that story. Because we can go to that story. We can go to, to Genesis 19 and see what happened. And, and what happened? Well, he kind of chose to live there, by the way. That was his decision. Raise his family there. When the angels came, and yes, Lot had that righteous moment when, when he, he protected the angels from the violence of, of, of the wicked people in the city. He brought them into his own home. At the same time, when the angels told him to leave, right, it says that he lingered. He didn't want to go. He wanted to stay in the place where his soul was tormented, by the way. And it's only because the angels grabbed him. It actually talks about the angels grabbing him and taking him out of the city that he loved the city that was later destroyed by God. So when you read the story, in the story you see a mixture of righteousness and wickedness in Lot's life. Yes, he was righteous. Yes, it bothered him. He made some really good, courageous choices. Righteousness, we saw that. But he also made some bad choices. And he also lingered, and he also kind of liked some of the sin that was happening in Sodom and Gomorrah. And yet when Peter evaluates his life, this is, to me, that's, that's amazing. Peter just calls him righteous. He doesn't even bring up all that other stuff that we know is true from other passages of Scripture. It's, it's amazing to me that when God looks at us, and this is, you know, Scripture is God's Word, so this is God's evaluation of our lives. And we have the luxury of seeing someone's life described honestly as it was in the Old Testament in this case, and then evaluated and assessed by God as He sees it now. And what we see is that a lot of the bad things are just simply overlooked by God. It's amazing. He does that with Jonah here. He says, I know you disobeyed me. I know you caused a lot of trouble, but the word of the Lord comes to Jonah again the second time. He says, arise and go to Nineveh and preach my message there. And he does that with us. So let me give you more examples. Abraham, right? We know his issues, and yet every time he's mentioned in the New Testament, it's his faith that's heralded. Did he have faith? Absolutely. Remarkable faith. He also had other junk that he dealt with. But that's not mentioned in the New Testament. But faith is mentioned. David, adulterer and murderer, right? But what do we know about David from the New Testament? Faithful king. He's always used as, as this example of a righteous, faithful king. It's, it, to me, it seems like it's, 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 almost, it's the same with almost all the characters, and I'm sure there are exceptions to that. But it seems to me, from the reading of Scripture, that God graciously overlooks our failures and almost ignores our weaknesses in His assessment of our lives. Now, I want to be careful here because it's not like it doesn't matter when we fail God. Of course it matters. It's not like He doesn't care that we have weaknesses. He deals with us. We've talked about discipline many times. Uh, We talked about work through Hebrews, and even in Jonah, you see what He's doing with Jonah. God cares 
about our character, and he cares about what we do and our choices, and he deals with us, and he corrects us. But at the same time, when he looks at us, he looks at our lives, he's able to say, I'm going to praise this, and I'm going to highlight this quality. I'm going to call Lot righteous, and I'm going to call Abraham faithful. I'm going to call David a righteous king and overlook the other stuff that they dealt with. I'm going to quote from Richard Sibbs, who's a Puritan writer, and is just a, a, one of the very encouraging writers. Um, he, he talks about Job here. Every time I read this passage, it just makes me laugh out loud, so I'm going to try to control myself. You don't have to, but I'm going to try to control myself. Richard Sibbs says, "'You have heard of the patience of Job,' says James. He's quoting from James 5, who says, "'You have heard of the patience of Job,' and this is what Sibbs adds." We have heard of his impatience too, but it pleased God mercifully to overlook that. So James says, you've heard of Job's patience, and everybody should be thinking, yeah, but I've read Job. There's also a lot of impatience there, but that's not brought up. James does not bring it up. Why does God overlook our weakness or our failure? Why does He restore us to another call to, to follow Him, to serve Him, when we have failed Him so many times? Because God is merciful, and God is gracious, and He is compassionate, and He is loving. This is the same God who is the Father of Jesus, the same God who sent His Son that He would die for us and remove our guilt. And in fact, separate our sins from God as far as the east is from the west. That's God's design. He sent His Son so He would die for us and remove our sins, our guilt, away from us. This is the same God who sends the Holy Spirit to us to dwell in us and to change us. So when God looks at us and looks at our lives, He's going to delight in the Holy Spirit's fruit in our lives. And he's going to celebrate the Holy Spirit's gifts that he gave us. And he's going to overlook our failures and our sins. Think about it in, in terms of parents and children. A good parent, a loving parent, chooses to praise something that's good about their child. Something they see that's good, they're going to focus on that and praise that and maybe overlook some of the negative things. Now, a good parent will also discipline the child and try to correct those things that are not good. But what's the focus? A good parent is going to point out good things and affirm the child. And maybe everything else they're doing wrong. You know, it's like when, it, when you ask your kid, to your toddler, to help you with dishes, right? It's a bad idea. Bad idea. But when they help you with the dishes, they're doing everything wrong, Right? But you're going to praise them for something. You're going to find something that's good, and you're going to say, man, you really held on to that spoon. Good job, you know. <laughs> the plate, not so much, but the spoon, you really did a great, great job with the spoon. You're going to find something that's good, and you're going to affirm that. And this is what God does with it. He looks at us, and He's going to find things in our character that reflect His character, and He's going to rejoice in that and affirm that. And then other things, He'll work with you on that. And the Holy Spirit will discipline. He will, he will change you 
But when God assesses your life, he's going to remember the things that you did well in his power and by his grace. And that's why the word of the Lord comes to Jonah the second time. Now, maybe God's word comes to you today the second time. We can all relate to Jonah. I can relate to Jonah. We can think of our own failure. We can think of our own weaknesses, our own disobedience, our own mess that we've made. But God says, here's my word coming to you the second time. There's grace. There's forgiveness. Well, it's not to say that our sins and our failures and our weaknesses will have no consequences on other people and on our own lives. Of course they will. It's not to say that God will not discipline and correct us, but that word comes again to us. The word that says, arise and go. Get up, re-engage with me, do what I'm asking you to do now. What do you say to that? How do you respond to God's word coming to you the second time? After you have failed, after you have made a mess of your life, and now it's coming to you, and God says, arise and go, will you go? There are so many Christians that are, that are kept ineffective by their own view of themselves. There are many Christians who, who allow their, their past disobedience to create more disobedience in their present. There are many Christians who are paralyzed by their own low view of themselves. I'm a failure. I can't do anything for God. I failed Him so badly, I I can't respond to this call that comes to me now. Do you think that pleases God when we do that? Because we think we're humble in that. We think we're, we're, we're kind of on the same page with God, that He's so angry with us that we shouldn't even obey Him at all. But it doesn't please God. It pleases someone else. But it doesn't please God to be ineffective, to be kept disobedient and passive in God's presence because in the past we have failed. Here's the the truth of our Christian life, and please listen to me carefully, and I speak absolutely from my experience as well as I speak from Scripture. Our motivation is always mixed at best. When you obey God, your motivation is never pure. There's always all sorts of things mixed into that. Our performance in God's service is never perfect. Even when you think you're doing great, right? You're obeying Him, you're following Him, you're still not doing everything right. Our faith does waver. Of course it does. None of us have consistently strong faith. We make mistakes. And sometimes deliberately we do things that we know to be true, to be wrong. And yet, and yet, God still calls us to serve Him. God still calls us to serve Him. And God knows more about you than you know about you. And He still calls us to serve Him. None of what I just mentioned, mixed motivation, mistakes, the mess we've made, failure, should prevent us from seeking to follow and serve Him. We see that in Jonah. Jonah is restored to the position of God's prophet because God is a gracious God. 
Listen to Richard Sibbs again. He says, we should not avoid good actions because of the infirmities attending them. Christ looks more at the good in them, which He means to cherish, than the ill in them, which He means to abolish. When Christ looks at you, He looks more at the good in your actions, with all your mixed motives. He looks at the good in you, and He means to cherish that. He's going to treasure that. He looks more at that than He looks at the ill in you, the bad in you, that He means to abolish. He's going to destroy that. That's not going to be part of you forever. But the good is going to be part of you. So He's going to cherish that. And, and then Sibs finishes this quote with this. He says, Christ loves to taste of the good fruits that come from us, even though they will always savor of our old nature. Christ loves to taste of the good fruits that come from us, even though they will always savor, savor of our old nature. We're not completely sweet. We're not completely pleasant to Him. But He loves to taste what is pleasant and sweet of us, even if there's aftertaste, even there's other flavors mixed in it. When Jonah, I'm not, gonna, I'm not trying to be gross, but I am making a point, okay? When Jonah went to Nineveh, I'm sure there was still a faint smell of fish vomit on him. And yet, such as he was, he preached God's message. And that message was effective. And God used Jonah. And we know that later on in chapter 4, next week, we'll look at it. It's not like Jonah has worked through all of his issues. He still has a lot of stuff. We don't even know, actually, the way the book ends. We don't even know kind of what happened with Jonah long term. If he's really just processed all of that and just really grown spiritually, if he's just kind of remained this grumbler, we don't know that. And yet, but God is using him. Look at that. God is using him, and God is using him to bring a whole pagan city to repentance. Amazing. But that's our God. That's who he is. That's how he does it. It's this consistent way of dealing with sinners. Uh, Henry Nowen has, has a little book that's called Wounded Healers. I think it's, just a, it's a great term to use that we are wounded healers. We're wounded. We're flawed. There are problems. There's infirmities and insecurities that are part of us. And yet, God still calls us to be healers. He can use us. Even if we're not perfectly healthy, we can still communicate health to other people by God's grace. And so, let's look at what God does through Jonah. So, God did a lot for Jonah, and now He's going to use him to do other good things for other people through him. So Jonah responds to God's grace. He goes to Nineveh. He preaches what God tells him to preach, I think. Maybe leaving some things out. We're not sure. We'll, we'll get to that. But God uses him to cause a massive spiritual awakening in a notoriously idolatrous, violent, immoral city. Now look at verses 3, 4, and 5. Jonah arose and went. God told him, arise and go. He arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Now, we don't know if that means it takes three days to walk across the city or around the city or spend time to see everybody in the city. But at any rate, this is a very big ancient city. 
Jonah began to go into the city to go in a day's journey. So he's taking time. He's talking to a lot of people here. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. It's a massive spiritual awakening, massive revival that happens. Now, two things typically happen in a revival. Well, two things always happen in a revival. Let me say, there's maybe other things, but these two always happen in any revival. Number one, God's Word is communicated. God's Word is always present in any spiritual revival. And number two, this Word is believed. It's accepted in faith. So somebody is communicating God's Word, and people are accepting it by faith, and they're putting it into practice. So Jonah preached God's message, but then Nineveh believed it. They've embraced it. It's not enough just to preach. You have to embrace it, and they did. Now, Jonah's sermon, I thought about it this week uh, because, as, as you know, I am a preacher and an expert on bad sermons. Nonetheless, I see that his sermon was, was, was pretty bad. This is all he said, apparently. Now, some people say, well, this is a summary. Okay, maybe. Maybe it's a summary, but even the summary, you would think you would put more into it. So this is his sermon in a sentence, we may say. Jonah says, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's, that's what he says. That's his message. There's no mention of God's mercy, which would think would be good to mention, there's no call to repentance. He's not leaving them any options. This, this is not a proclamation of, if you don't do this, then God will do that. This is not like that. He, all he says is just, God is going to judge you in 40 days. That's it. There's no alliteration. <laughs> Amazingly, there's no points, no structure to this. And yet, and yet, it's still God's Word. And that Word is very, very powerful. Jonah speaks this message that I would say it's, it's, it's an imperfect message. He's not saying he should say more, but he doesn't. And yet, people fill in the rest. And they respond to it the way they should respond to it, in repentance, in asking God for his mercy. Now, we often, I often, don't say things the way I should say them. And there are many times when I'm, and I'm be thinking probably this afternoon about this sermon, I should have said that this way, and I should have added that nuance, and I should have said, but I don't mean that. But that's what it is. We don't, we don't communicate really well a lot of the times. And yet, if it's God's Word, He takes that and uses it and produces amazing results. I mean, how many times it happens that somebody comes to you and says, you know, it's just, when you said that to me in that one conversation, there was, this was so important to me, and you, you've changed my perspective on this. And you're trying to go back trying to remember what you said, because you don't remember, and you didn't plan to say that. And yet, God used it, and God spoke through you. And this is what's happening with Jonah here. We often don't say things the right way and don't point to everything we need to point to, and yet God uses that. There's a, a great story about Charles Spurgeon, who may not have ever preached a bad sermon, as far as I, I know. 
They don't call you prince of preachers for nothing, <clears throat> although he wasn't the king of preachers. So I don't know. Maybe there was some deficiencies. But Spurgeon tells this story. This is in, in, his, own, in his, his autobiography. He says uh, in, he, went to, he was going to preach at this new place, this large cathedral, palace type of place. And so he went beforehand a few days earlier to just to check the acoustics to make sure that the, this is before these wonderful things that we, we have now where, where you don't have to stand in one specific place in a building and the building didn't have to be constructed, doesn't have to be constructed in a way that, that you can hear everything everywhere you sit without a microphone. This is a big blessing for us. In Spurgeon's days, he went to see, to know where to put the pulpit so it had the maximum uh, effect so he could preach in the most clear way. And so, so he's going around in, this, in this, this large auditorium, and he's just kind of practicing. And so he just says really loudly, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And there's a worker in the gallery who doesn't know Spurgeon is there. He doesn't know anything that's going on. And he hears this voice of God, right? <laughs> Becomes solidly converted. Comes to Christ. His life is completely transformed. Joins a church. How does that happen? Spurgeon didn't mean to do that. He wasn't trying to communicate the gospel. He was just practicing, right? And yet God takes that word, which is, that's his word, right? That's from Scripture. And he applies it to someone's heart. That's not even supposed to be there, but he applies it to his heart and completely changes the person. So when you're witnessing to someone, yes, we need to be wise, sure. Yes, we need to be winsome. Yes, we need to be compassionate and truthful. That's all of that applies. And yes, you need to know your Bibles, yes. But don't worry about hitting all the points. Don't worry that if I, if I would have said that, that person would have been converted right now. That is never the case. Never the case. Whatever you say, whatever God speaks through you, if it's His Word, He will use it as He wills. And you can trust Him. Because the power doesn't reside in us. It doesn't reside in our communication skills and our timing. It doesn't reside in that. It resides in His Word. His words bring power. His words bring life. And so we're conduits, right? And we need to be conduits. And Jonah is conscious of this fact that he is God's messenger. He's God's prophet. And yet, it's God's Word that produces this change, not Jonah. So Nineveh believes. They respond by visible repentance. This is important. Of course, the most significant change is internal. It's a, it's a change of the heart. They respond to this message of God's judgment by turning their hearts to God. But it is visible in their actions. Sackcloth, ashes, fasting, proclamations... I mean, it's amazing how evident, how obvious their, their position, the posture of their heart is based on what they do physically and visibly. It's a pervasive revival. The king, the nobles, all classes of the society, even the animals are participating in that. That's strange. Does it seem strange to you? It does to me a little bit. 
I don't think they're repenting necessarily here. I don't know. But they don't have any choice. The king said, we're not eating today. We're not drinking today. But the whole, the whole society, the whole city is participating in this repentance. It's pervasive. All strata of, of, of society are affected by this revival. And yet, they're doing all of that, all the sackcloth and ashes and fasting, without the assurance of God's forgiveness. What does he say? He says, the king says, who knows? That's his hope. (laughs) Who knows? Maybe God would relent. Maybe if he saw how serious we are about our sin, that he would change his mind and he would just not judge us and he would spare us. That's all they have to go, go on. It's just maybe. Maybe this God is merciful. It's so convicting, isn't it? Now, we know that God is merciful. We have been given assurance of forgiveness. We know that in Christ, God does forgive all our sins. We know that. And yet, is, is it reflected in our repentance? They don't know as much as we know, and they go as far as they can in their repentance. Sackcloth and ashes. And we know how much God loves us and that he will forgive us, and we don't go nearly as far as Nineveh goes. We often presume on God's mercy. And that leads to excusing our sin. But they grieve over their sin in hope of mercy. In just hope of mercy. Who knows, the king says, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. There's just a hint of mercy here. Who knows? Maybe God is merciful. Now, I can't help but think that this hope of mercy is connected somehow to Jonah's own story. I'm sure people knew what had happened to him. He spent a lot of time with people. I'm sure there was a lot of conversation. And so I'm thinking that they're putting things together and saying, well, if God was so merciful to his disobedient prophet, thrusting him in the storm and into the fish, but then delivering him and forgiving him and now renewing his call in his life again, that maybe, just maybe, the same God could be merciful to us. Knowing the story of Jonah, knowing what he went through, they've concluded that this God may be merciful. And so who knows? Maybe he will forgive us. And God does. This merciful and gracious God forgives Nineveh. Verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Praise God for his forgiveness, his mercy, his grace, his ability to relent, his ability to say, I don't need to judge you. I would have, but I don't need to judge you. And some people look at that and say, well, this God is sort of a God who can just change his mind. There's a better explanation. Instead of the inconsistency of God and God being capricious, maybe God is just very, very intentional in delivering his grace to us. One commentator says, it was God's intent all along to show mercy to the Ninevites. Remember, that's what Jonah 
thought was happening in the beginning. It was God's intent all along to show mercy to the Ninevites, knowing that the stated prediction of judgment would elicit their repentance so that God could then display His originally intended mercy. I believe that. I think this, this expression of judgment, this, this message of judgment is a tool in bringing mercy to Nineveh. Well, finally, my last point, and I, I want to I apply this. I want us to consider how it applies to us, to Chatham, to this church, to our lives. And so I have two questions I want to leave you with as we process what happened with Jonah and what God may do with us. So two questions. Number one, why not us is my question. Why not us? Why not Chatham? Why could God not use us to prompt a massive revival in our city? Why not? Why not this band of wounded healers? Why not this group of messed up people who've been called again by God to serve Him and again and again? Why not us? We have some unpleasant history in our past, sure. We have our issues, yes. There is a bit of a a fish vomit smell on us a little bit, yes. But does God not call us to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and to teach them to observe all that Jesus has commanded us? He calls us. That call is still effective for us. It's still on us as it is on any believer. And so why not us? Why not re-engage with that? If If you're on the fringes of God's work, And if God is talking to you this morning and saying, maybe you could be a person through whom I will work in the lives of other people. Why not say yes to that? When God says, arise and go, and you say, I I am arising and I'm going. I want to participate in your work. Whatever your call is for me, I'm embracing that. And my second question, the first one was, why, why not us? But the second is, Who knows? Who knows? We cannot presume on God's grace. So when I say, why not us? Why can't God use us? The question is, of course He can. But we don't know that He will. Because He is a sovereign God. He's a free God. He does what He wants. He may use you. He may use me. He may use someone else. He may bring revival to North County through another church that will be full and our church will be the same. He may do that. But who knows? Maybe He will use us. Maybe He will bring a revival to North County. And maybe we will see, with our own eyes, see our neighbors come to Christ. And we'll see our community transformed and marriages restored and and addiction conquered and crime lowered. Maybe we will see that. Maybe we will see it this afternoon. Who knows if God will do that? He can. He might do that. Who knows? There's that, it's, it's a very Christian question to ask. Who knows? Maybe God will give us a tremendous amount of grace this afternoon. He just might. And so we live in that 
openness and expectation that God is like that. Who knows what He might do today? Who knows how He might use me and our church to bless others? Those are my two questions to you. Why not Chatham? Why not us? And who knows what God may do through us? And my encouragement to you is, and it's a very practical application of this, read about revivals. Read about God's amazing works. Some of them are happening right now in certain parts of the world. Stay in touch with those missionaries. Stay in touch with with local pastors and Christians that are talking about that. There have been many works of God throughout the history. Get some books. I'm going to recommend a book to you if if you'd like. That's a good book to give you kind of an, an, an overview of revivals. It's called The Vision, the Vision of God. I think it's called The Vision of God. Yeah. This is a problem when I'm recommending a book I can't remember. It's, it's, it's by Woodbridge and, and Hanson, the two authors. And I think it's called The Vision, the Vision of God. It's just, it's just a, great, it's a great book. It's, it's a quick read, but it'll give you just this, this highlights of various revivals throughout the history of the church. Read those kind of books. Get excited about what God might do. Who knows? He may do that in our time, in our area. Friends, if Nineveh, I'll finish with this. If Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah, Jonah, right? And someone greater than Jonah is here. We have Jesus. Will not North County repent at the preaching of Christ? Who knows? God may do that. If Nineveh was converted by the story of Jonah, the wounded healer Jonah, will not North County be converted by the story of Jesus, the crucified Savior? If the hint of mercy in Jonah's preaching moved the whole city to repentance, will not the full proclamation of mercy in the gospel move our community? Do you have a vision for an awakening? Are you longing for it? Are you dreaming about it? Why not us? And who knows what God might do through us?